On the 9th of January 2012, the news came. Malam Bakai Sanya, the president of Guinea-Bissau, has died in Paris after a short illness, according to media reports. The 64-year-old travelled to France to seek medical treatment in November. The exact nature of his condition was never made public. The head of the National Assembly, Gemundo Pereira, became the interim president and the presidential elections were scheduled to be held within 90 days. There were nine candidates, with the clear frontrunners being the former president, Kumbayala, who the military ousted from power in 2003, and Prime Minister Carlos Gomez Jr., accused by rivals of fueling instability and tolerating the growing cocaine trade. Elections were held in March and voting seemed peaceful. But just hours later, the former military intelligence chief, Colonel Samba Diallo, was shot dead in Bissau. There was a growing fear and unease within Guinea-Bissau and beyond that there could be yet another military coup. Then just days before the second round of campaigning was set to begin, on the 12th of April 2012, the military moved on both candidates. The so-called cocaine coup had begun. It says it was a move to halt foreign aggression. But the reality is that it's not the first time the military has done something like this. There have been multiple coup attempts over the years. It's been accused of assassinations and some of its top generals are said, by the United States and others, to be actively involved in the drug trade. In exile, out of power, and now in the Ivory Coast. The man who would have been President Carlos Gomez Jr. and another top politician arrive in Abidjan. <laughs> Just weeks ago, Gomez Jr. was hoping to be Guinea-Bissau's next president, but that's no longer the case after a coup just over two weeks ago. But this isn't a podcast about cocaine trafficking, as pivotal as that is to the illicit market of Guinea-Bissau. No, this podcast is about the illegal logging trade that exploded in the wake of the 2012 coup. And which now, as the current government seems poised to lift a moratorium on timber exports, which has been in place for over five years, could be facing a resurgence. This is Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is part two of Guinea-Bissau, Powder Sangri, Blood Timber. Guinea-Bissau lies to the south of the Sahel region, the semi-arid band that stretches from east to west across the African continent. The country itself is currently 70% covered by forests. These sacred areas are the lifeblood of local communities, crucial for feeding the population, but also for maintaining a diversity of species and healthy biosystems. Forests lock in water which maintain water tables, prevent soil erosion and desertification, which are critical for long-term human sustainability and security. But within the forests, it's not uncommon to hear the whirring of chainsaws mixing with the sounds of wildlife. 
those loggers are searching for a specific tree, a tree protected under international law, the tree that bleeds, rosewood. In the period of military junta rule between 2012 and 2014, illegal logging in Guinea-Bissau exploded. During this time, cashew prices, the country's main export, plummeted, and the international community imposed sanctions against the leaders of the new military government. Logging became a way for the military to get cash quickly. Udifati is an economist and social activist, as well as the head of Vostipas, an NGO working in research and action to promote the culture and peace of Guinean society. This has been a concern since 2008. Although people are now talking more, perhaps because signs of climate change are being felt as a result of these cuts. In 2012, there is no denying that there was a massive cut of wood. At the country was being subject to sanctions, people who were in power at the time were left without the resources of external support. Wood and other natural resources were used to some extent to support the state apparatus and the people in power. In 2013, Chatham House estimated that as much as 80% of logging in Guinea-Bissau was illicit. Remarkably, Guinea-Bissau went from exporting 61 tonnes of timber to China in 2007 to almost 98,000 tonnes in 2014. According to the report authorised plunder by the Environment Investigation Agency, the EIA, in 2014 alone it's estimated that the country exported approximately 255,000 trees. But the massive increase was due to the huge demand for rosewood logs in China, where the logs are made into furniture known as Hongmu. This demand is literally felling forests in Guinea-Bissau. Local communities and civil society voiced their protest and even stood up to the illegal loggers. But when the very forces there to protect you, such as the military, are not only acting against your interests, but actually facilitating the destruction, forests were plundered, protesters were harassed, threatened and even beaten. Udifati. The idea of rational consumption of natural goods and cutting of trees is a problem that has already been reported. I recall a study done by Vosdipaj already in 2008 that spoke of cutting wood and cashew. And I remember the words of an interviewee who said, speak to our leaders, they will end our forests. They are cutting down all the trees in a non-rational way. After the coup of 2012, there was an international outcry. Throughout the two years of military rule, Guinea-Bissau was under great pressure from the international community to hold elections. Individuals were sanctioned. The African Union suspended Guinea-Bissau's membership. Brazil froze all cooperative projects and so on. If Guinea-Bissau held elections, all of these sanctions would be reversed. By 2014, the military relinquished power. Elections were held and civilian government returned under newly elected president, Jose Mario Vaz. But by that time, logging market profits had already funneled into the democratic process. Just as we heard in our previous episode on Guinea-Bissau, the political and military elite turned to the illicit markets to fund their political ambitions. 
As with cocaine, profits from illicit logging have fed into election campaigning in the country for many years. And they were particularly prominent in the 2014 elections, which came right at the end of this period of unchecked logging during the time of military junta rule in the country. Lucia Bird is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. And there are reports of trucks full of logs travelling into Bissau every day in the months before the elections. And a number of current prominent politicians are believed to have benefited significantly from funds from the illicit logging market to fund their electoral campaigns. And similarly, the very temporary lifting of the moratorium in 2017, which was ordered by the current president, Mbalo, who was prime minister at the time, is widely perceived to have been driven by a desire to sell some of the stockpiled wood and use the profits for electoral campaigning. These short-term political ambitions are decimating the Basau Guinean landscape, a landscape that's taken decades or even centuries to mature. Fode Mani is from the law school of Bissau. Chopping down trees that take 60, 70 years to reach maturity without planting makes the country more vulnerable. Another thing, we know that people come to buy wood look for the rarest species. These rarest species are also difficult to maintain, but for them it does not matter. What matters is to cut them and then, with the protection of some political figures, take them to sell. The corruption was at such a level that prominent officials, law enforcement and the army actively helped the predominantly Chinese traffickers and corporations to circumvent laws relating to harvesting and export, even helping to forge licenses, completing the laundering process. The vast scale of illegal logging during the two years of military rule was astounding. And after civilian government returned, civil society successfully pressured the new president for a temporary ban on logging, followed by a five-year moratorium on all log exports. The implementation of the moratorium and subsequent seizures led to massive stockpiling of logs across Bissau between 2014 and 2016, reportedly over 400,000 logs. 104,000 of those were actually seized awaiting a legal export to China. Despite these headline figures, Chinese demand for rosewood remains insatiable, and governmental corruption has enabled illegal logging to not only continue during the moratorium period, but the seized and stockpiled wood has, according to the EIA report, remained in the control of those exporters who had it confiscated in the first place. Obento Branco Katami is the regional delegate for forestry and wildlife in the Kashu region. It is like this. If I have a cow, even if laws are made to prevent steel, if will always try to steal the cow. The moratorium for five years was promulgated by the President of the Republic in 2015, but that was big pressure to cut high-value timber. The problem is, this law only covered the timber industry, but clandestine players continue to operate, which means the moratorium didn't help much. In the region of Cacheo, there is a little bloodwood, so there are not many cuts. But in the other regions, having bloodwood, illegal logging continues. 
Now, rosewood is a protected species under the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or the CITES Agreement. This means that international trade in rosewood is illegal, whether there is a moratorium or not. Despite this, and the moratorium being in force, some felling of fresh wood, including rosewood, has continued using loopholes or just blatantly breaching the moratorium. Here's Lucia Bird. Under the moratorium, the BPNA is allowed to cut and gather dead wood. But according to community members, the BPNA have used this as a cover for cutting fresh wood, which is then mixed into the shipments of deadwood and transported to Bissau for sale. And also in the temporary lifting of the moratorium, this triggered a surge in the felling of fresh wood because it was disguised among consignments of the older stockpiled wood before export and then shipped out together. And it was incredibly prevalent, seen in the surge of illicit logging. According to the EIA, in its report Authorised Plunder, the 2017 brief lifting of the ban was partly driven by Chinese traders and even the Chinese embassy in Guinea-Bissau, who pressured the government into reopening the trade. Some Chinese traders even told EIA investigators that they had funded several trips for government officials to meet in person with the CITES Secretariat representatives. It seems pretty clear that there are significant Chinese interests in this trade. Well, certain Chinese business interests are visible at each point of the logging supply chain. So at the point of buying concessions, bribing officials, offering loans or equipment to informal elements of the logging industry. And of course, China is the biggest import market for timber from the country and particularly the very valuable rosewood. And Chinese interest really became very visible between 2012 and 2014 in that period of explosion of logging in the country. But some elements of the Chinese business community do appear to remain directly involved in the logging industry in Guinea-Bissau. So, for example, in the region of Gabu, which is in the interior of Guinea-Bissau, community members repeatedly reported seeing Chinese nationals felling trees under the protection of the Environment and Nature Protection Brigade, or the BPNA, who then help in transporting the wood to Bissau. And of course, as we've seen with the Zongzi factory, there are Chinese interests involved there at the processing and export stage. If Chinese interests are key, who are the other players? Tanya Gomez is the president of the Association of Friends of Guinea-Bissau. Community leaders play a decisive role in both facilitating and preventing illegal logging because they are responsible officials within the community and decision makers with full powers to make and enforce any decision. Often to cover some personal or community needs, they accept dangerous offers, giving up the common good of nature, which are of great importance. Rarely do we see continuous and spontaneous actions on preservation from the community leaders without it being a situation of alarm or risk. In the recent deep-rooted interest policy brief from the GI, it was revealed that some community leaders have succumbed to the corrupting influence of money from illicit felling. Here's Lucia Bird. So some leaders have suddenly acquired flashy 4x4s or Jeeps or are suddenly doing expensive home renovations, which were perceived by the community to have been financed through their role in illegal logging. And of course, this has created a really toxic environment and damaged trust between communities and community leaders, 
in some contexts leaving communities with very little access to justice for the environmental damage going on. But it's important to recognize that in some communities, the community leaders have been very important in coordinating resistance to illicit logging activities and have been you know, real defenders uh, of the natural environment. And even where they are involved in the illegal logging, it's really important to remember that they are facilitators and not really the high level coordinators. Community members and regional government officials all agree that high-level coordinators are players within the most powerful elements of the state. Indeed, the GI has seen a bill of lading dated September 2020 that suggests involvement of the Prime Minister, Nuno Gomez Nabiam, who's been implicated in illegal logging to fund his 2014 election campaign. This document is marked for the attention of Vitor Gomez Nabiam, the brother of the Prime Minister, and shows an import of three containers into Basau port from Guangdong, China. Within these three containers, there are 914 pieces of equipment, equipment seemingly for a wood factory. So what is the Zongzi factory? The Zongzi factory is a wood factory in Basau, and it owns the warehouse in which the judicial police seized the wood in November 2020. The judicial police came to the warehouse because investigations into the wood suggested that it had been illegally sourced. The Zongzi factory is reportedly managed by Chinese nationals, but owned by a consortium that features a Chinese businessman, the Prime Minister Nabiam, and Brian McCamera, who's the coordinator of the Madgem Party, which is currently in power in Guinea-Bissau. And Zongzi has a pretty dubious legal status. It doesn't exist on the register of wood factories kept by the Directory of Forestry and Fauna within the Ministry of Agriculture, or at least it didn't in late 2020 when law enforcement asked for a copy of the list. And although it's reportedly operational, the National Electricity and Water Utility Company reported having no formal contract with the Zongzi as at the end of 2020. And you can read more about the Zongzi factory in Lucia's policy brief, Deep Rooted Interests. As we heard in the previous episode, Guinea-Bissau, the Casamance region of southern Senegal and the Gambia are intimately linked. The instability that has plagued this area is directly influenced by the logging trade. The Gambia has been a key exporter of timber, including the valuable rosewood, for a very long time. And a lot of timber exports from Gambia are not felled in the country. Instead, they are from the Casamansi region, a very unstable area in southern Senegal, which fled back into full conflict in February of this year, but also in Guinea-Bissau. Now, Yahya Jameh, who's the former dictator of the Gambia, had very close ties to the timber trade. And when he was ousted in 2017, there were huge hopes that things would change. And these were supported by the imposition of a suspension on import, export, transport, of timber immediately after Adama Barrow came to power. But these hopes were dashed. And according to investigations by the Environment Investigation Agency and the BBC, over 300,000 tonnes of West African rosewood have been exported from the Gambia to China since Barrow's inauguration. And that's not only terribly bad for the environment, but has serious implications for regional stability because logging in the Casamansi region is controlled by the separatist rebels in the area and a key source of funding. So the Gambia's role as an exporter is directly fueling conflict in southern Senegal. 
a conflict that remains the oldest in Africa. In early 2021, the Guinea-Bissau government is poised to lift the moratorium on logging. Despite the continued illegal logging, could we consider it to have been a success or not? Here's Tanya Gomez again. In some communities where non-governmental organizations work tirelessly to raise awareness and inform local communities in partnership with other state and non-state institutions, yes. For example, in the case of the Kashi River Natural Park, the commitment of the local community is very positive, where there is constant and permanent active participation. In this case, we can confirm that 95% of the moratorium has been a success. So despite that success of the moratorium in both slowing down felling activities and making it harder to export large volumes of timber, the protection it offered is certainly incomplete. And the imminent lifting of the moratorium, this has sparked renewed fears of a return to increased levels of illegal logging and over-harvesting, particularly of valuable species such as rosewood. See? Yes, it is a constant concern because policies tend to change constantly. There is no political stability and policies change depending on the rulers. Sometimes they are favorable and other times unfavorable to sustainability and preservation of natural resources. The community seems non-existent in face of this scenario because sometimes they are put in situations of invaders. The laws usually do not defend them. And from the looks of things, those fears are justified. Here's Lucia Bird again. So ahead of the anticipated lifting of the moratorium, communities are already reporting an acceleration in illicit logging. And this is expected to surge even more once the moratorium is lifted. It's possible to, to launder wood in shipments. So if certain timber exports are legalized, the fear is that this would facilitate the export of illicitly felled wood, including, for example, the rosewood species. The government say the logging sector would be very closely regulated even after the lifting of the moratorium, but there's very little capacity to do that even if there is true political will to do so. So lots of stakeholders, including the local communities, are very, very worried that we will see a return to the uncontrolled logging that happened before 2014. The environmental damage is just one aspect to this. The narrow self-serving interests of the military and political elite has significant socio-economic consequences for all Bissau Guineans with bleak implications for the future. Udi Fati. The truth is that now you can talk about economics. You can talk about any development process without mentioning the word sustainable. And uh, when it comes to sustainable development, one of the first things is this care in the exploitation of resources so that it can guarantee the replacement or the existence of that resource for both the current generation and the future generation. And so, to protect this natural environment for future generations, what role can civil society play in protecting these valuable forests? Here's Tanya Gomez again. The decisive role would be to help in the creation of community-based organizations to fight against illegal logging, promote information and awareness campaigns, 
implement alternative actions for reforestation and forest recovery, avoiding the uncontrollable expansion of cashew monoculture. As for the state, the best was to have a good non-partisan administration permanently composed of community representatives who vehemently zeal for the moratorium prohibiting the felling of trees. That's the end of this episode on illegal logging and the two-part special on the illicit economies of Guinea-Bissau. I'd like to thank Udi Fati, Fodimani, Tanya Gomez, Obento Branco, Katami and Lucia Bird. If you'd like to check out episode one of our Guinea-Bissau special, it's available in this podcast feed. Also, there's a link to the policy brief, Deep Rooted Interests, in the summary to this show, along with other links related to this podcast. To read more of the Global Initiative's work on Guinea-Bissau, you can head over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. And I feel that at this point, it's important to give a special thank you to those who work alongside the GI under immense pressure and threats of violence, yet continue to research how the illicit economy interacts with the state of Guinea-Bissau. They truly are remarkable, courageous and dedicated to improving the lives of their fellow citizens. You've been listening to Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. Mm